All right, let's open in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this time to be together, to gather and to worship you, to experience your presence, uh, to experience your love for us, and to think about and see all the great things that you have for us. We pray that you would uh, bless this sermon and that you would give us clarity and you would help us to think through these things well. Uh, we pray that you would just give us the anointing of your spirit, and we pray that you'd bless this. And we thank you for your grace and amen. So today we are continuing our series called How to Be Legalistic. This is the last sermon of this series. Again, the goal of this series is not, I'm not trying to encourage you all to be legalistic. I'm, I'm trying to make it clear how people become legalistic so that we can avoid it. The term legalism is a bit of a catch-all term uh, for almost any type of having an unhealthy relationship with rules. So in this series, we've been trying to address four different types of problems that could each be considered legalism. Believing that the law will justify you, believing that separation will sanctify you, holding to standards that God doesn't command, and being too concerned about sin. And unfortunately, legalism does have the tendency to sneak into our thoughts and attitudes, typically in small and subtle ways without us noticing. Because almost, you know, people who are legalistic don't know that they're legalistic. And if we take that into account realistically, any of us could be legalistic. And typically, people aren't just extremely legalistic or not legalistic at all. Typically, there's little bits and pieces of legalism that creep into our thoughts and attitudes. So we, our goal in this series is to learn how to identify legalism in our own thoughts and attitudes and to help us overcome it. So today's sermon is titled, Being Too Concerned About Sin. I decided to change the title from caring about God's commands more than God does to being too concerned about sin. But those, those mean almost the same thing. So how can a person be too concerned about sin? Can that really happen? Uh, before I answer that, I want to show that the size of a concern or of a desire needs to be measured relatively. And when I say relatively, I mean relative to the size of your other desires and your other concerns. The size of your concerns and desires need to be measured in the context of other concerns and other desires. So for example, caring for yourself isn't bad. You need at least some measure of care for yourself if you're going to stay alive. But a person can have too much care for themselves. A person can care about themselves too much. And we all know that. But how much is too much? Well, it depends. It depends primarily on how much that person cares about other things. Let's pretend for the sake of example that we can assign weight to desire or concern. If a person has five pounds of care for themselves and one pound of care for others, then they care for themselves too much. But if a person has five pounds of care for themselves and 10 pounds of care for others, then having five pounds of care for themselves is totally fine. And you know, this makes sense, especially since God made some people with more, more emotional temperaments and some people with less emotional temperaments. Some people feel strongly about everything and some others, by comparison, don't feel strongly about much of anything. So 
how much is too much, how much is too little for any desire or any concern, that needs to be measured in the context of your other desires and your other concerns. So hopefully that example makes it a bit clear. Um, but back to the question, how can a person be too concerned about sin? Uh, the main way you can care too much about sin or be too concerned about sin is caring about sin too much compared to how much you care about other things or how assigning too much weight to sin compared to the amount of weight you assign to other things like God's grace or caring about specific sins too much in comparison to how much you care about other things. So we're going to give uh, three examples or three different ways that a person can be too concerned about sin. The first one is caring more about external behavior than about loving God. So this is a form of being too concerned about specific sins in relation to a person's concern about love for God. Because sometimes we do get too focused on external behavior more than whether or not a person's heart really belongs to God. But God cares more about the heart, even though he cares about both. Let's look at Matthew 23, verses 23 through 24. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. So God's will for us has a lot of different aspects to it, but some of those aspects of God's will are more important to God than other aspects of God's will. And we see this pretty clearly in this verse. Jesus said something that may come across as surprising, you've neglected the weightier matters of the law. In Jesus' view, and Jesus is right, some, some aspects of the law are weightier or more important than others. None of it's not important, it's all important, but some are more important to God than others. But in the next two verses, we see even more specifically that Jesus wants us to prioritize a heart that is devoted to God. Let's look at Matthew 23, uh, 25 and 26. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate so that the outside may also be clean. So Jesus is talking to the Pharisees about their hearts. They didn't actually have dishes that were so dirty that their plates had greed and self-indulgence in them. Their hearts had greed and self-indulgence in them. They had greed and self-indulgence in them. The Pharisee is the plate. The Pharisee is the cup. You are the plate. You are the cup. The cup and the plate are just humans. And the outside might be clean, but the inside can still be full of greed and self-indulgence. And Jesus says, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. Jesus is saying here that if a person loves God, if a person's heart is truly committed to God, the issues with their external behavior will eventually, naturally work themselves out. 
But if a person doesn't love God and merely has good external behavior, then none of it matters anyways. So being too being more concerned about external behavior than about whether or not we love God is a problem. It's a problem that has consequences. And the main consequence is it leads us to focus on the wrong things. It'll lead us to focus on the wrong things for ourselves and for others. The Pharisees were so focused on external behavior that they didn't realize that their hearts were far from God. They were unaware of that, but their hearts were very far from God. Let's look at Matthew 15, verses 7 through 9. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Again, we should care about our behavior. It should be important to us that we have Christ-like behavior. But we shouldn't let it become more important to us or more of a focus than whether or not we love God. We see uh, later how Jesus really wanted the Pharisees to give their hearts to God. Let's look at Luke, 37, Luke 11, verses 37 through 41. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms, or give to God, those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. God wants us to have a priority of giving our hearts to him. And if we become more concerned with external behavior than having our hearts wholly committed to God, it will eventually lead us in the wrong direction, just like it led the Pharisees in the wrong direction. And it not just can lead us in the wrong direction, but it can lead us to lead others in the wrong direction. Because we all have some level of influence with others. But if we're more concerned with external behavior than with whether or not people love God, when we're interacting with others, if we're trying to help them spiritually, we're going to be pointing them in the wrong direction. And we're going to be uh, concerned with the wrong things. Jesus values Christ-like external behavior, and he values a heart that's committed to him, but he values a heart that's committed to him even more, and we need to think like he does. So let's talk about some ways that we do this, some ways this gets into our thinking or our attitudes, this idea that external behavior is more important than a heart committed to God. Well, the first one's just, you know, the obvious one, just focusing more on what we do and don't do than on whether or not we love God. You know, which one do we spend more time thinking about? Which one would worry you more? The idea of you failing in some matter of external behavior or of you failing to love God. Which one is more worrisome to you? 
The second way we can fall into this mindset of, um, of treating external behavior like it's more important than a heart committed to God is caring more about whether or not our children behave well than whether or not they know God. And this is an easy mistake to fall into because bad behavior among children is very annoying. <laughs> and it's easy to get uh, wrapped up maybe a little too... It's good to care that your children have good behavior. You should. But it's all about desires and concerns being relative to the size of other desires and other concerns. You definitely should care that your children have good behavior, but you should care even more that they know God. And if you, if you start to become more concerned with whether or not they have good behavior than whether or not they know God, then you're going to be missing opportunities as a parent that you don't want to miss. You're going to not be seeing things that you should be seeing. The last way that I think is somewhat common um, of how sometimes we start to focus more on external behavior than on a heart committed to God is when we condemn committed Christians for doing things we don't agree with. And sadly, this is somewhat of a common problem in the church, condemning committed Christians for doing things we don't agree with. Let's look at Romans 14, verses 1 through 4. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So in verse 3, in Romans 14, verse 3, we see something very interesting that's somewhat overlooked. Paul says, let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. The way I see it, this passage forbids us from condemning Christians who are generally seeking to obey God, but who think it's okay to do things that we think are sins. And the tough thing about that is sometimes we're right and sometimes we're wrong, and we don't know, because no one ever knows all the things they're on in, else they'd change their mind and not be wrong about anything. So we're going to have disagreements with other Christians things that we think is sin and they don't, or things that they think is sin and we don't, and we don't really know with complete, complete certainty, even if we think we do, that we're right. Amen. We can't know that. So this is complicated, but God forbids us from condemning Christians who are sincerely committed to obeying him, but happen to disagree with us. Now, sometimes when a person says something's not a sin, you can tell from other parts of their life they're not genuinely seeking to obey God. Like, you know, God wants me to have this affair because he wants me to be happy. Typically, people who say that have no interest in genuinely obeying God. You, you do have to exercise some discernment and call a person's heart into question and their motives into question. 
There are plenty of people who think that certain things are okay that you wouldn't think are okay who aren't seeking to obey God. But if another Christian is seeking to obey God and they disagree with us, God doesn't want us to condemn them over that. And if we valued loving God as most important, then we wouldn't condemn Christians uh, who do love God for doing things that might be sins out of ignorance for them. And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't reason with them or try to correct them, but it does mean we shouldn't condemn them. We shouldn't pass judgment on them. Paul was very clear um, in verse 3, let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. But the one who abstains doesn't know that it's okay to eat. He thinks he's right. But Paul said not to pass judgment anyways. You know, things we should do instead if we have a disagreement with someone like this is to reason with them. You know, what does the Bible say about such and such a thing? What does the Bible say about meat sacrifice to idols? We should also be gracious with them because we should be gracious with everyone, but especially with other Christians. The third thing we should do is we should acknowledge that they're not living in rebellion. Even if uh, it turns out that we are right and they are wrong, then at most what they have is a sin out of ignorance, but not will for rebellion. And those are two very different things. And we should acknowledge that they are committed to living for God, even if they might be wrong about something. And the last thing we should do if we find ourselves with this type of disagreement is we should consider the possibility that the area that you disagree uh, over might be grayer than you think it is. There's a lot of gray areas in Christian ethics. Like we talked about last week, almost everything isn't always right or always wrong. Most things are right or wrong based on context, proportion, and maybe motive. So that's the third way that sometimes we end up uh, thinking about external behavior like it's more important to God than our hearts being committed to him is. So that's the first way we can be, in some sense, too concerned about sin, being more concerned with external behavior than on a heart that's committed to God. The second way a person could be, in some sense, too concerned about sin is caring more about perfection than about unity. Again, all of our concerns and desires need to be thought about in the context of our other uh, concerns and desires. And there's, there needs to be proper ratios. There needs to be balance. But this is a, a problem that we have in the church, being more concerned about perfection than we are about unity, or valuing purity significantly more than we value unity. And that's unbiblical. God wants us to value both purity and unity. 
and they need to be held in balance. We can't afford to totally put purity over unity, and we also can't afford to totally put unity over purity. Jesus does want the church to have purity, and sometimes that means not associating with certain people who claim to be Christians. Let's look at Matthew 18, verses 15 and 17. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take, it to, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector." Let's also look at 1 Corinthians 5, verses 9 through 13. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you that you not, to not associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? It is not those inside the church whom you are to judge. God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So God wants the church to have purity. And sometimes purity and unity can be at odds with each other to some degree. But God wants us to prioritize both of them. Jesus wants us to be gracious with each other and to pursue unity. Let's look at Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 3. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Bearing with one another in love means tolerating one another's imperfections. And he tells us to be eager to maintain unity. He wants us to be diligent to maintain unity. Let's also look at John 17, verses 20 through 23. Uh, Jesus in his high priestly prayer. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So Jesus has an amazing goal for the church. He wants the church to be perfectly one. So that needs to be important to us. Unity needs to be important to us. But sadly, sometimes in the church, we get uh, too caught up with purity and we neglect unity. So how does that happen? Well, there's four ways I would say that I can think of that that happens. Uh, the first one is churches splitting over doctrinal issues that aren't 
central to the gospel. You know, sometimes churches split or won't allow people to join over their beliefs about baptism or their beliefs about election or their beliefs about eschatology. And that is no reason for Christians to not fellowship with one another. Even though there is a right or wrong belief in each of those areas, those aren't worth breaking unity over. Breaking unity with other Christians just because a minor aspect of their doctrine isn't quite right is a sin. And it's a sin that's very common in the church today. And frankly, I think that's a sin that's particularly bothersome to God. Because unity is very important to Jesus. The second way in which we might start to prioritize purity over unity or care about perfection more than unity, is refusing to associate with certain Christians who have a struggle that they are fighting against. So the verses we read earlier in 1 Corinthians uh, about not associating with certain Christians um, with certain sins have to do with people who are purposefully living in rebellion, like purposefully living in rebellion, making no attempt to fight their sin, making no attempt to repent. If a Christian is stuck in a certain sin but trying to fight against it, that's not biblical reason to disassociate with them. Let's look at Galatians 6, verses 1 and 2. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. So even though as the church, we should be pursuing purity. We shouldn't refuse to associate with Christians just because they have a struggle they're fighting against. The third way that uh, sometimes we start to prioritize purity above unity is refusing to associate Christians who think things we don't agree with. You know, sometimes we refuse to associate with Christians who disagree with us doctrinally or who disagree with us about some aspect of Christian ethics. But unless it's like something major, major, major issue, like they believe someone other than Jesus is God, it's not good enough reason to break unity. And there are certain doctrines that I wish other people didn't believe, like the idea that the gifts of the Spirit aren't for today. I wish no one believed that, but that's not a good reason to break unity or to have a judgmental attitude. Which brings us to the last way that um, we can start to care about purity more than unity, is having a judgmental attitude towards other Christians because of their imperfections. And really, this is rather unfair for us to do because we all have imperfections. We have our own imperfections, and we have plenty of them. But having a judgmental attitude really does hinder unity. It's hard to have unity. It's hard to get along when two people have a judgmental attitude, or even when one of them has a judgmental attitude. 
We all have many imperfections, but God doesn't want us to have a judgmental attitude towards each other over it. It's very important to God that Christians don't have judgmental attitudes towards each other. Let's look at four passages of Scripture that make that point. Let's look at James 5, verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Let's also look at uh, James 4:11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or against another Christian or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you are a judge of the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. And we looked uh, recently at Romans 14, 1 through 4, but let's look at it again. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls." And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. And lastly, let's look at Matthew 7, verses 1 through 5. Judge not that you may not be judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, then you will be able to see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So, it, it, so it's proper to, to acknowledge that other people have sins and to correct them for it. But it's not proper to have a judgmental attitude, especially towards other Christians. And sadly, this is an issue that's very common today. But if we're going to achieve what Jesus wants the church to achieve of being perfectly one, we need to get past having judgmental attitudes towards other Christians. You know, other Christians are wrong about plenty of things, but we're wrong about plenty of things. So caring more about perfection than about unity is another way we can be in some sense too concerned about sin. God wants us to value purity, but he also wants us to value unity. And we can't afford to neglect unity and just prioritize purity. The last way, um, or the last example I'll give of how a person could be too concerned about sin is feeling like your sin is the end of the world. God wants us to think how he thinks. He wants us to think in agreement with him. If there's something God thinks, and we know that he thinks it, we should agree with him. We should think it too. 
but God doesn't think that your sin is the end of the world. He's not fond of it, but it's not the end of the world to him. And that's because he knows he'll have victory over it. He knows that he's greater than your sin. But having too big of a view of your own sin, it can be bad. It can become an issue. It can lead to a sense of condemnation. It can make it hard to see God's love for you. It can make it hard to see his grace for you. And the idea that, um, you know, seeing your sin is too big or bigger than God's grace for you is dishonoring to God. Because you're seeing something as bigger than God. If your sin is the end of the world, then it's bigger than God's grace. Or bigger than his power or bigger than his wisdom. The idea that your sin is the end of the world is dishonoring to God. We shouldn't aim to think of our sin as badly as we can. I've, I've mentioned this before, but since we all know that we should love God as much as we can, right? And since we should, it can be easy to jump logically from there to the idea that since sin is displeasing to God, we should think of our sin as badly as we can. But that's not true, because that's going to that's gonna eventually take you down the wrong road. If you keep trying to see your sin as bad as you can, you very well might end up seeing it as bigger than God. And that's a problem. Rather, you should, instead of aiming to see your sin as badly as you can, you should aim to see your sin how God sees it. And he doesn't like it. He wants it to stop. But it's not the end of the world to him. It's not keeping him up at night. Your sin doesn't make God anxious. So what, what are some ways that, uh, that this kind of gets into our thinking, this idea that our sin is the end of the world? Um, well, feeling like God won't love us if we sin, that's an easy thing to think, but it's unbiblical. Let's look at Romans 8, verses 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Anything, nothing can separate us from God's love, and that includes sin. Sin is a problem, but it's not big enough of a problem to separate you from God's love. Another way we can start to overestimate how bad sin is, is feeling that God won't delight in us if we sin, or that God will lose all delight in us because of our sin. But that's not biblical. Let's look at Proverbs 3, verse 12. For the Lord repro reproves or disciplines the one whom he loves, just as a father disciplines the son in whom he delights. Why do you discipline someone? Well, because of sin. That doesn't mean that God doesn't have delight in us just because we sin and he has to discipline us. For an even stronger example, let's look at Jeremiah 31, verse 20. Is, not Eph is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. So Ephraim, uh, in this case, represents uh, northern Israel, because Israel had kind of separated into Judah and the rest of Israel. 
And God is saying, there's so much sin here, but don't I still delight in Israel? My heart yearns for him. My heart yearns for my people, even though they're so filled with sin. Jeremiah is potentially one of the lowest point of Israel's relationship with God. God tells Jeremiah several times, stop praying for mercy for this people, because I'm not going to relent this time. Like, that's pretty bad. Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah was a particularly low time for the people of Israel. But God says in Jeremiah, don't I still delight in them? Isn't there still some delight there? Yeah, just like a father has for a child. The last way we tend to uh, see our sin as too big is feeling like we'll have no worth if we sin or if we fail. You know, sometimes we get tempted to feel like a sin or a failure makes it so that we have no worth, but that's not true. If you're a child of God, then your existence is going to bring God delight for all eternity. And that's an endless amount of worth. So again, don't aim to think of your sin as badly as you possibly can. That's a bad goal. You should aim to think of your sin accurately, especially accurately in proportion or in relation to other things, like God's grace and God's power and his wisdom and his love. Your sin is not the end of the world, even though it is an issue. So that's the third way a person can be too concerned with sin. So in conclusion, uh, as I've mentioned in every conclusion in the series, legalism tends to sneak into our thoughts and attitudes, and we need to be on the lookout for it. Um, we need to be fighting against it, and we need to be, know what it looks like. No one who's legalistic thinks to themselves, I'm legalistic, I'm going to wake up and be legalistic, that is my goal for today. For the most of it, everyone who's legalistic doesn't know that they're legalistic. And the, the second point I want to conclude with is, it is possible to be too concerned about sin. It's certainly also possible to not be concerned enough about sin. Sin is a very major issue. Anything that's threatening your relationship with God is a very major issue. That being said, it is also possible to be too concerned about sin. We need to be balanced. We need to see each aspect of God's will in the context of the big picture. So let's close in prayer and then we'll have our communion meditation. Dear Lord, we thank you uh, that you are bigger than our sin. Uh, we thank you that your grace and your love and your wisdom and your power are all, they're all more than our guilt. They're all more than our sin. They're all greater than our propensities to fail. Uh, we pray that you'd help us to see our sin accurately, not too small and not too big. We pray that you'd help us to prioritize unity. We pray that you'd help us to be gracious towards other Christians and not condemning and to not um, forsake fellowship just for small disagreements, Lord. We pray that you'd help us to have grace for others and to be humble. And we thank you for your grace for us. And amen. So today's communion meditation is called Christ is Greater Than Our Sin. So, you know, as we just talked about, one way a person can have too big a view of sin is to see it as bigger than God's grace.
And our sin is quite a serious issue, but Christ's power and love and grace are all greater. Because of Christ, we don't have to be anxious about how well we obey God. Let's look at 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus, through his death on the cross, has paid the price for all our sins, even the ones we don't yet know we're going to commit. Let's look at Hebrews 10, verses 10 through 14. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he is perfected for all time all those who are being sanctified. Let's praise him as we come to the table.